Chapter Five of the Railway Builders. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Doug Shepherd. The Railway Builders: A Chronicle of Overland Highways by Oscar D. Skelton. Chapter Five: The Grand Trunk Era, Part Two. The next move was to arrange terms with the other provinces and secure the promised imperial guarantee. How Hinks and Chandler's mission failed has already been told. Hinks then made another sharp curve and decided for company control. Before leaving Canada he had made up his mind that the construction should be entrusted to British contractors and was authorized to negotiate with the Brassey firm. Now that the imperial guarantee had faded away, capital was needed more than contractors. The Brassies promised both, offering, if given the contract, to organize a company in England which would provide all the capital not guaranteed by the province. This seductive offer was to prove the main cause of the financial embarrassment of the Grand Trunk. It involved at the outset a dubious connection between company and contractor, and also for two generations an attempt to manage a great railway at a range of 3,000 miles. So fatal did it prove that in later years each party to it endeavoured to throw the responsibility for the initiative on the other, and enemies of Hinks declared that he, as well as Lord Elgin, the Governor-General, had been bribed to wreck the negotiations with the British government in order to take up with Brassey. Whether or not Hinks was first to resume negotiations in London, it was the contractors who had already taken the initiative in America, sending a representative to Toronto and taking part in the elections of 1851 in Nova Scotia against Howe. It is clear also that the British government was unwilling to consider anything but the unacceptable Major Robinson line. Hinks was justified in looking elsewhere for capital, but was not justified in binding himself to one firm of contractors, however eminent. Hinks returned to Canada with a tentative contract in his pocket. To Canada, too, came Henry Jackson a partner in the Brassey firm for this enterprise, and one of the most skillful and domineering of the railway lobbyists in Canada's annals, rich in such methods. At once a battle royal began in Parliament. On August 7, 1852, the Montreal and Kingston and the Kingston and Toronto charters were proclaimed in force. Apparently the supposition of the government was that the English contractors would simply subscribe for the bulk of the stock in these companies but the Canadian promoters were not willing to give up their rights so easily. A week after the books were opened, Galt, Holton, and Macpherson subscribed between them 596,500 pounds, and seven of their associates took up the nominal balance of the capital of 600,000 pounds, which was authorized. Hinks met this move by bringing down a bill to incorporate a new company, the Grand Trunk Railway Company of Canada and the rights of the rival claimants came before Parliament for decision. On behalf of the English promoters, it was urged that the Canadian promoters could not raise the necessary capital, that the Galt-Holden-McPherson subscription was a fake, that the English contractors could induce capitalists to invest freely at low rates, and that their superior methods would result in a road of more solid construction and lower working expenses than the ordinary American railway. Holton and Galt, on the other hand, contended that their subscription was in good faith, that tenders were in, 
and that with provincial guarantee and municipal aid, and by paying the contractors partly in stock, they could finance the road. It would be better, they urged, to have the control in the hands of men who knew the province, rather than in the hands of outsiders. The Grand Trunk Company, seeking incorporation, was only a sham company, under the thumb of the contractors, formed to ratify a foregone contract with them. If the Montreal and Kingston Company was given control, it would invite the Brassy firm to tender on the same basis as other contractors. No more could honestly be asked. Galt and Holton had the best of the argument, but Hinks had the votes, and rumors which Jackson spread of the Brassy millions and the firm's open door to all the money markets of Europe brought conviction or afforded excuse. The Railway Committee reported in favor of the English promoters, though the competition had compelled them to reduce their price by a thousand pounds a mile, and to accept a guarantee of three thousand pounds per mile instead of half the cost. At the same time, the Brassy firm secured a charter for the Grand Trunk of Canada East to run from Quebec to Trois-Pistoles, Canada's first section of the Halifax to Quebec route. The same aggressive firm had already secured a contract for the Quebec and Richmond, which was to join the St. Lawrence and Atlantic at Richmond, and, as has been seen, for New Brunswick and Nova Scotia roads. With these contracts seemingly secure, Jackson sailed for home. But Canadian promoters were quick to learn. Galt had another card to play. As president of the St. Lawrence and Atlantic, he proposed to amalgamate this road with the Montreal and Kingston, and to build a bridge at Montreal, thus securing an essential part of the trunk line. Hinks became alarmed at the Montreal interests thus arrayed against him, and proposed as a compromise that the Grand Trunk should absorb the St. Lawrence Road and build the bridge at Montreal, on the condition that the opposition to its westward plans should be abandoned. Upon this all parties agreed, and the English and Canadian promoters joined forces. Negotiations were completed in England in early 1853. As yet the Grand Trunk Company was but a name. The real parties to the bargain were many. First came John Ross, a member of the Canadian Cabinet, but representing the future Grand Trunk, of which he was elected President. The Barings and Glens, eminent banking houses, had a twofold part to play, as they were closely connected with the contractors and were also the London agents of the Canadian government. The contractors themselves, Petto, Brassy, Betts, and Jackson, of whom Jackson, accompanied by the company's engineer, A.M. Ross, had spent a year studying the Canadian situation, put in anxious weeks hammering out the details of the agreement and the prospectus to follow it. Galt represented the St. Lawrence and Atlantic, and the Atlantic and St. Lawrence, while Rhodes and Forsyth of Quebec had charge of the interests of the Quebec and Richmond. An agreement was reached to amalgamate all the Canadian roads, and to lease the main road for 999 years. This left Toronto the western terminus. An attempt to absorb the Great Western, and thus secure an extension to Windsor, came to nothing. This failure gave Galt an opening for another brilliant stroke of railway strategy. A company had recently been chartered to build a road from Toronto to Guelph and Sarnia, and the firm of Zosky and Company, of which Galt was a member, had secured the contract. Galt, acting with Alexander Gillespie, a prominent London financier, who was the agent of the Toronto, Guelph, and Sarnia Railway, now proposed to substitute this line as the westward extension. 
Everybody was in an amalgamating mood, and the bargain went through. All contracts previously made were taken over by the amalgamated company, and the investing public was told that all uncertainty as to the total amount was thus removed, as it emphatically was for the time. A glowing prospectus was drawn up. The amalgamated road would be the most comprehensive railway system in the world, comprising 1,112 miles, stretching from Portland, and eventually from Halifax, by both the northern and southern route, to Lake Huron. The whole future traffic between west and east must therefore pass over the Grand Trunk, as both geographical conditions and legislative enactment prevented it from injurious competition. Commencing at the debouchure of the three longest lakes in the world, the prospectus continued, it pours the amalgamating traffic in one unbroken line throughout the entire length of Canada into the St. Lawrence at Montreal and Quebec, on which it rests on the north, while on the south it reaches the magnificent harbours of Portland and St. John on the ocean. It was backed by government guarantee and Canadian investment, and its execution was in the hands of the most eminent contractors. The total capital was fixed at £9,500,000 sterling. The revenue was estimated at nearly £1,500,000 a year, which, with working expenses at 40% of revenue, and debenture interest and £60,000 for lease of the Atlantic and St. Lawrence Railway deducted, would leave £550,000, or 11.5% on the share capital. On the advice of Baring and Glynn, only half the capital was issued at first. This decision proved a serious mistake. In 1853, when the company was floated, money was abundant and cheap. The shares and bonds issued were oversubscribed twenty times, and were quoted at a premium before allotment. Scarcely was the issue made when war with Russia loomed up, and money rose from three to seven or eight percent. Never again was it possible for the Grand Trunk to secure capital in such abundance. But this was for the future to disclose. At once construction began in Canada. A. M. Ross was appointed chief engineer, and S. P. Bitter general manager, both on the nomination of the English bankers and contractors. Plant was assembled in Canada, orders for rails and equipment were placed in England, and navvies came out by the thousand. At one time, 14,000 men were directly employed upon the railways in Upper Canada alone. In July 1853, the last gaps in the St. Lawrence and Atlantic had been filled up, though not in permanent fashion. In 1854, the Quebec and Richmond section was opened. In 1855, the road from Montreal to Brockville and from Levis to St. Thomas, Quebec. In 1856, the Brockville to Toronto and Toronto to Stanford sections. Not until 1858 was the Western Road completed as far as London. The year 1859 saw the completion of the Victoria Bridge, the extension from St. Mary's to Sarnia, and a new road in Michigan, running from Port Huron to Detroit. By 1860, the eastern section extended to Riviere du Loup, where a halt was made. From the outset, difficulties undreamed of had developed. Money was hard to get, and early traffic returns were disappointing, so the company found it almost impossible to secure the balance of the capital required. The road from Montreal to Portland was found to require heavy expenditure to bring it up to the standard. The contractors, for their part, were embarrassed by the company's shortage of funds 
and by the great rise in the prices of land, materials, and labor. Their own activities, the reciprocity of 1854 with the United States, the Crimean War, had combined to bring on a period of inflated prices such as Canada was not to experience again for half a century. With wheat at $2 a bushel, and land selling by the inch, even liberal margins of profit on contracts vanished. In these straits the company turned to the government for aid. It had many supporters in the house. No one could deny the benefits which its operations had conferred upon the province. The government guarantee of interest and the government nomination of a part of the board of directors were plausibly held to involve responsibility for the solvency of the company. It was not surprising, therefore, that for a decade after 1855, scarcely a year passed without a bill to amend the terms of the Grand Trunk Agreement. One year it was an additional guarantee, another a temporary loan, again a postponement, and again a still further postponement of the government's lien. It soon came to be recognized that the money which had been advanced under the guarantee provisions must be considered a gift, not a loan, though to this day the amount nominally due still figures as an asset on the Dominion government's books. Incidentally, the embarrassing government directors were dispensed with in 1857. The Grand Trunk was completed from Lake Huron to the Atlantic in 1860. In the ten years that followed, working expenses varied from 58 to 85 percent of the gross receipts, instead of the 40 percent which the prospectus had foreshadowed. Not a cent of dividend was paid on ordinary shares, nor has been to this day. What were the reasons for this disappointing result? The root of the trouble was that the road was not built solely or even mainly with a view to operating efficiency and earning power. It was the politician's road, the promoter's road, the contractor's road, at least as much as the shareholder's road. The government had encouraged the building of unprofitable sections, such as that east of Quebec, for local or patriotic reasons. Promoters had unloaded the Portland Road, and later the Detroit and Port Huron Road at excessive prices. The contractors east of Toronto had had an eye mainly to construction profits in planning the route, and heavy grades, bad rails, and poor ballast increased maintenance charges beyond all expectations. The prophecy that operating expenses would not exceed 40% of earnings based on English experience, failed partly because earnings were lower, but more because operating expenses were higher than anticipated. The company had more than its share of hard luck from commercial depression and from loss on American paper money in the Civil War. Water competition proved serious in the East, while other railways waged traffic wars in Upper Canada. The trade of the Far West, which had been the most attractive lure, did not come in any great amount for the first twenty years. Differences of gauge, lack of permanent connections at Chicago, lack of return freight, rate wars with American roads, which had been built west at the same time or later, the inferiority of Montreal to New York as of old in harbor facilities and ocean service, the failure of Portland to become a great commercial center, all meant hope and dividends deferred. Finally, the management was working at long range. The road did not enjoy the vigilant inspection or the public support that would have attended control by Canadian interests. The Grand Trunk did Canada good service, well worth all the public aid that was given. 
it would probably have given better service and its shareholders could not have fared worse had the plans of galt and his associates not been interfered with and the line been built gradually under local control while the building of the grand trunk was the main achievement of the period it was by no means the only one the fifties were the busiest years in the railway annals of older canada in eighteen fifty there were only sixty-six miles of road in all the provinces in eighteen sixty there were two thousand and sixty-five of which over seventeen hundred had been added in the canadas alone the great western and northern were pushed forward under the provisions of the earlier guarantee act roads of more local interest were fostered by municipal rivalry their building brought unwanted activity in every branch of commerce a speculative fever ran through the whole community fortunes were made and lost in the provision trade and land prices soared to heights undreamed of this mood was the promoter's happy chance and still more charters were sought the pace quickened till exhaustion contagious american panics poor harvests and the crimean war which first raised the price of the wheat canada had to sell but later raised the price of the money she had to borrow brought collapse in eighteen fifty seven in this boom period jobbery and lobbying reigned to an extent which we rarely realize in our memory of the good old times railway contractors were all-powerful in the legislature and levied toll at will the most notable contractor boss of the day was able dealing with the great western to hold up a bill for double tracking until assured of the contract himself dealing with the grand trunk to force from the english contractors a share in the enterprise before consenting to help their schemes through with the northern to collect a hundred thousand dollars as a condition of securing from the government the guarantee bonds before they had been rightly earned municipal officials were bribed to help bonuses through existing roads were blackmailed by peddlers of rival charters glaringly fraudulent prospectuses were issued on a smaller scale the excitement and rascality which had marked the beginning of the great railway eras in the united kingdom and the united states were reproduced in canada of the other roads completed in this period the two which had been aided by hinck's first guarantee act were most important the great western had a promising outlook it ran through a rich country and had assured prospects of through western traffic the road was completed from suspension bridge to windsor in january eighteen fifty four an extension from hamilton to toronto was built in eighteen fifty six and a semi-independent line from galt to guelph absorbed in eighteen sixty the great western came nearest of any early road to being a financial success alone of the guaranteed roads it repaid the government loan nearly in full but after a brief burst of prosperity from eighteen fifty four to eighteen fifty six it too was continually in difficulties in eighteen fifty six it paid a dividend of eight and a half per cent but three years later it paid nothing and in the next decade averaged less than three per cent the troubles of the great western came chiefly from competition actual and threatened and uncertain traffic connections to the north the chartering of the toronto guelph and sarnia amalgamated later with the grand trunk cut into its best territory an endeavor was made in eighteen fifty four to divide the remaining area but two years later the battle was renewed the great western building to sarnia and the grand trunk tapping london and detroit
between the Great Western and Lake Erie, a rival road direct from Buffalo to Detroit was threatened time and again, but was not built until after Confederation. South of Lake Erie, the lake shore in Michigan Southern was built shortly afterwards by interests connected with the New York Central, thus threatening the traffic connections of the Great Western, both west and east. To avert loss of its western trade, the Great Western sunk large sums in aiding the construction of a road from Detroit to Grand Haven, with ferry connections to Milwaukee. But this experiment did not prove a success and caused serious embarrassment. The Northern Railway, whose promoters, as we have seen, naively recognized that railways and lotteries were close akin, was opened as far as Allendale in 1853 and to Collingwood in 1855. It was scamped by the contractors, poorly built, and overloaded with debt. The sanguine policy of building up through traffic from the American West, by water to Collingwood, and rail to Toronto, proved a will-o'-the-wisp. In turn, the company relied on independent steamers, and set up a fleet of its own, but equally in vain so far as profit went. By 1859, the road was bankrupt. A new general manager, Frederick Cumberland, brought in a change of policy. Local traffic was sedulously cultivated, and a fair degree of prosperity followed. Most of the lesser roads constructed looked to the municipalities rather than to the provinces for aid. The Municipal Loan Fund of 1854 was the third and last phase of Hink's railway policy. This was an ingenious attempt to give the municipalities the prestige of provincial connection without accepting any legal responsibilities municipalities had previously been permitted to bonus or take stock in railways and toll roads, but their securities were unknown in the world's markets. Hinks now provided that municipalities, which wished money to aid railways or other local improvements, might practically pool their credit and share in the credit of the province. Provincial debentures were issued against the municipal obligations pooled in the fund, and the proceeds of their sale given to the municipalities. A sinking fund was to be maintained, and, if need be, the province could levy through the sheriff on any defaulting town. The municipalities made full use of their privileges. It was believed that railway investments would yield high dividends, and the more optimistic expected to see all taxes made unnecessary by the profits earned. Town vied with town in extravagant enterprises. Not a cent brought a dividend. Instead, the municipalities found themselves saddled with heavy interest payments. One after another declined to pay. Port Hope was $312,000 in arrears by 1861, and Coburg $313,000. The municipal government had not the political courage to send in the sheriff, and accordingly it was forced at last to assume the whole burden. Prudent municipalities which had declined to borrow at 8% found themselves compelled to share the burdens of their reckless neighbors. Demoralization was widespread. The railways constructed by such aid may be briefly noted. The Buffalo and Lake Huron, extended from Fort Erie to Godrich, was completed in 1858. It had its origin in the ambition of Buffalo to have more immediate connection with the rich western peninsula of Upper Canada and the lake trade beyond than was afforded by the Great Western. The London and Port Stanley, built in 1854-56, failed to realize the expectations that it would become the main artery of trade between Canada 
in the states across the lake, but it developed a fair excursion trade and coal traffic and indirectly justified its construction. The Erie and Ontario Portage Road, rebuilt in 1854, has already been noted. Another portage road round Niagara Falls was the Welland Railway, planned by W. Hamilton Merritt, the projector of the Welland Canal. It ran from Port Colborne on Lake Erie to Port Dalhousie on Lake Ontario, 25 miles, and was completed in 1859, only to add one more to the list of unprofitable roads, and eventually to be absorbed by the Great Western. Farther east, the rivalry of Port Hope and Coburg led to the construction of two roads, the Coburg and Peterborough, and the Port Hope, Lindsay, and Beaverton. Both relied chiefly on timber traffic, and aimed to develop the farming country in the rear. The Coburg line, begun in 1853, suffered disaster from the start. The contractors' extras absorbed all the cash available, the three-mile bridge built on piles across Rice Lake gave way, and after one million dollars had been expended, the road was sold for a hundred thousand dollars. The Port Hope line, which absorbed a branch from Millbrook to Peterborough in 1867, fared somewhat better. The Brockville and Ottawa was a lumber road, carrying supplies up and timber down. It was chartered to run from Brockville to Pembroke, with a branch from Smith Falls on the Rideau Canal to Perth. By 1859 it had reached Almont, and six years later struggled as far as Sandpoint on the Ottawa, when it halted till the Canadian Pacific project gave it new life. After failing to make ends meet for some years, the company went through repeated reorganizations in the early 60s. The Bytown and Prescott, later the St. Lawrence and Ottawa, built in 1854, was also a lumber road, promoted by interests connected with the Ogdensburg Railway, whose terminus was opposite Prescott. It suffered the same financial fate, and was sold to the English company which had supplied the rails at a total sacrifice of municipal and other creditors' interests. Around the Long Sioux Rapids in the Ottawa, there was built in 1854 the 13-mile Carolyn and Grenville, a summer portage road, an early enterprise which retained its independence and its old 5-foot 6-inch gauge until 1912, when it was absorbed by the Canadian Northern. In Lower Canada, the only minor road built which has not been referred to was the Stansted, Shefford, and Chambly, opened in 1859 from St. John's to Granby, and forming practically an extension of the Champlain and St. Lawrence from the former point. End of chapter 5, recording by Doug Shepherd.